the man who actually knows just what he wants in life has already gone a long way toward attaining it. Chapter 16 The Six Ghosts of Fear How Many Are Standing in Your Way Take inventory of yourself as you read this closing chapter and find out how many of the ghosts are standing in your way. Before you can put any portion of this philosophy into successful use, your mind must be prepared to receive it. The preparation is not difficult. It begins with study, analysis, and understanding of three enemies that you will have to clear out. Indecision, doubt, and fear. The sixth sense will never function while these three negatives, or any one of them, remain in your mind. The members of this unholy trio are closely related. Where one is found, the other two are close at hand. Indecision is the seedling of fear. Remember this as you read. Indecision crystallizes into doubt. The two blend and become fear. The blending process often is slow. This is one reason why these three enemies are so dangerous. They germinate and grow without their presence being observed. The remainder of this chapter describes a state of mind that you must attain before the philosophy can be put into practical use. This chapter also analyzes a condition that has reduced huge numbers of people to poverty, and it states a truth that must be understood by all who accumulate riches, whether measured in terms of money or in terms of a state of mind that may be of far greater value than money. The purpose of this chapter is to turn the spotlight of attention on the cause and the cure of the six basic fears. Before you can master an enemy, you must know its name, its habits, and where to attack it. As you read, analyze yourself carefully and determine which, if any, of the six common fears have attached themselves to you. And keep in mind that sometimes they are hidden in the subconscious mind where they are difficult to locate and still more difficult to eliminate. The Six Basic Fears There are six basic fears. At one time or another, every person suffers from some combination of these fears. Most people are fortunate if they do not suffer from the entire six. Named in the order of their most common appearance, they are the fear of poverty, the fear of criticism, the fear of ill health, the fear of loss of love of someone, the fear of old age, and the fear of death. All other fears are of minor importance and are in fact just variations on these six. Fears are nothing more than states of mind. Your state of mind is subject to your control and direction. You can create nothing that you do not first conceive in the form of an impulse of thought. The following statement is of even greater importance. Thought impulses begin immediately to translate themselves into their physical equivalent, whether those thoughts are voluntary or involuntary. Even thought impulses that are picked up by mere chance, thoughts that have been released by other minds, may determine your financial, business, professional, or social destiny just as surely as the thoughts that you create by intent and design. This circumstance also explains why some people seem to be lucky 
while others of equal or greater ability, training, experience, and brain capacity seem destined to have misfortune. The explanation is that you have the ability to completely control your own mind. With this control, you may open your mind to the thought impulses that are being released by other brains, or you can close the doors tightly and admit only thought impulses of your own choice. Nature has endowed human beings with absolute control over only one thing, and that one thing is thought. This fact, coupled with the additional fact that everything we create begins in the form of a thought, leads us very near to the principle by which fear may be mastered. If it is true that all thought has a tendency to clothe itself in its physical equivalent, and this is true beyond any reasonable room for doubt, it is equally true that thought impulses of fear and poverty cannot be translated into terms of courage and financial gain. The First Basic Fear The Fear of Poverty There can be no compromise between poverty and riches. The two roads that lead to poverty and riches travel in opposite directions. If you want riches, you must refuse to accept any circumstance that leads toward poverty. The word riches is used in its broadest sense, meaning financial, spiritual, mental, and material wealth. The starting point of the path that leads to riches is desire. In Chapter 3, you received full instructions for the proper use of desire. In this chapter on fear, you have complete instructions for preparing your mind to make practical use of desire. Here is the place to give yourself a challenge, which will definitely determine how much of this philosophy you have absorbed. Here is the point at which you can tell what the future holds in store for you. If, after reading this chapter, you are willing to accept poverty, you may as well make up your mind to receive poverty. This is one decision you cannot avoid. But if you demand riches, determine what form and how much will be required to satisfy you. You know the road that leads to riches. You have been given a road map. If you follow it, it will keep you on that road. If you neglect to make the start or stop before you arrive, no one will be to blame but you. This responsibility is yours. No excuse will save you from accepting the responsibility if you now fail or refuse to demand riches of life. All you need is one thing. Incidentally, the only thing you can control, and that is a state of mind. A state of mind is something that is up to you. It cannot be purchased. It must be created. Most Destructive Fear Fear of poverty is a state of mind, nothing else. But it is sufficient to destroy your chances of achievement in any undertaking. This fear paralyzes your ability to use reason, destroys the imagination, 
kills off self-reliance, undermines enthusiasm, discourages initiative, leads to uncertainty of purpose, encourages procrastination, wipes out enthusiasm, and makes self-control an impossibility. It takes the charm from your personality, destroys the possibility of accurate thinking, diverts concentration of effort. It defeats persistence, turns willpower into nothingness, destroys ambition, clouds the memory, and invites failure in every conceivable form. It kills love and assassinates the finer emotions of the heart, discourages friendship and invites disaster in a hundred forms, leads to sleeplessness, misery, and unhappiness, and all this despite the obvious truth that you live in a world of overabundance of everything your heart could desire, with nothing standing between you and your desires except lack of a definite purpose. The fear of poverty is, without doubt, the most destructive of the six basic fears. It has been placed at the head of the list because it is the most difficult to master. The fear of poverty grew out of our inherited tendency to prey upon our fellow human beings economically. Nearly all animals lower than us are motivated by instinct, but their capacity to think is limited, and therefore they prey upon one another physically. We, with our superior sense of intuition, with the capacity to think and to reason, do not eat others bodily. Human beings get more satisfaction out of eating others financially. Humans are so avaricious that every conceivable law has been passed to safeguard us from one another. Nothing brings so much suffering and humility as poverty. Only those who have experienced poverty understand the full meaning of this. It is no wonder that we fear poverty. Through a long line of inherited experiences, we have learned, for sure, that some people cannot be trusted where matters of money and earthly possessions are concerned. So eager are we to possess wealth that we will acquire it in whatever manner we can, through legal methods if possible, through other methods if necessary or expedient. Self-analysis may disclose weaknesses that you do not like to acknowledge, but this form of examination is essential if you are going to demand of life more than mediocrity and poverty. Remember, as you check yourself point by point, that you are both the court and the jury, the prosecuting attorney and the attorney for the defense, and that you are both the plaintiff and the defendant. You are on trial. Face the facts squarely. Ask yourself definite questions and demand direct replies. When the examination is over, you will know more about yourself. If you do not feel that you can be an impartial judge, Call upon someone who knows you well to serve as judge while you cross-examine yourself. You are after the truth. Get it, no matter at what the cost, even though it may temporarily embarrass you. The majority of people, if asked what they fear most, would reply, I fear nothing. The reply would be inaccurate, because few people realize that they are bound, handicapped, whipped, spiritually and physically through some form of fear. So subtle and deeply seated is the emotion of fear that you may go through life and never recognize its presence. 
Only a courageous analysis will disclose the presence of this universal enemy. When you begin such an analysis, search deeply into your character. The following is a list of the symptoms to look for. Symptoms of the Fear of Poverty 1. Indifference Commonly expressed through lack of ambition, willingness to tolerate poverty, and the acceptance of whatever compensation life may offer, without protest. Also mental and physical laziness, and lack of initiative, imagination, enthusiasm, and self-control. 2. Indecision The habit of permitting others to do your thinking. Sitting on the fence. 3. Doubt Generally expressed through alibis and excuses designed to cover up, explain away, or apologize for your failures. Sometimes expressed in the form of envy of those who are successful, or by criticizing them. 4. Worry Usually expressed by finding fault with others, a tendency to spend beyond your income, neglect of personal appearance, scowling and frowning, nervousness, lack of poise, self-consciousness, and often the use of alcohol or drugs. 5. Overcaution The habit of looking for the negative side of every circumstance. Thinking and talking about possible failure instead of concentrating on succeeding. Knowing all the roads to disaster, but never searching for the plans to avoid failure. Waiting for the right time to begin until the waiting becomes a permanent habit. Remembering those who have failed and forgetting those who have succeeded. Seeing the hole in the donut, but overlooking the donut around the hole. 6. Procrastination The habit of putting off until tomorrow, that which should have been done last year. Spending more time in creating excuses than it would take to do the job. This symptom is closely related to overcaution, doubt, and worry. Refusal to accept responsibility. Willingness to compromise rather than put up a fight. Compromising with difficulties instead of harnessing and using them as stepping stones to advancement. Bargaining with life for a penny instead of demanding prosperity, opulence, riches, contentment, and happiness. Planning what to do if you fail instead of burning all bridges and making retreat impossible. Weakness of, and often total lack of, self-confidence, definiteness of purpose, self-control, initiative, enthusiasm, ambition, thrift, and sound reasoning ability. Expecting poverty instead of demanding riches. Associating with those who accept poverty instead of seeking the company of those who demand and receive riches. Money Talks Some will ask, Why did you write a book about money? Why measure riches in dollars alone? Some will believe, and rightly so, that there are other forms of riches more desirable than money. Yes, there are riches that cannot be measured in terms of dollars. But there are also millions of people who say, Give me all the money I need, and I will find everything else I want. The major reason why I wrote this book on how to get money 
is that millions of men and women are paralyzed with the fear of poverty. What this sort of fear does to one was well described by Westbrook Pegler. Editor's Comments James Westbrook Pegler was a controversial newspaper columnist for the Chicago Daily News and the Washington Post. Although his career lasted into the 1960s, he was most widely read and quoted during the 1930s and 1940s. During that period, he went from being a public supporter of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal policies to the opposite end of the political spectrum, championing conservative points of view. Pegler was also the author of three books based on his columns, and in 1940 won the Pulitzer Prize for his expose of union racketeering. This is the end of the editor's comments. We continue with the article by Westbrook Pegler. Money is only clamshells or metal discs or scraps of paper, and there are treasures of the heart and soul which money cannot buy. But most people, being broke, are unable to keep this in mind and sustain their spirits. When a man is down and out and on the street, unable to get any job at all, something happens to his spirit, which can be observed in the droop of his shoulders, the set of his hat, his walk, and his gaze. He cannot escape a feeling of inferiority among people with regular employment. Even though he knows they are definitely not his equals in character, intelligence, or ability. These people, even his friends, feel, on the other hand, a sense of superiority and regard him, perhaps unconsciously, as a casualty. He may borrow for a time, but not enough to carry on in his accustomed way, and he cannot continue to borrow very long. But borrowing in itself, when a man is borrowing merely to live, is a depressing experience, and the money lacks the power of earned money to revive his spirits. Of course, none of this applies to bums or habitual ne'er-do-wells, but only to men of normal ambitions and self-respect. Women in the same predicament must be different. We somehow do not think of women at all in considering the down-and-outers. They are scarce in the breadlines, they rarely are seen begging on the streets, and they are not recognizable in crowds by the same plain signs which identify busted men. Of course, I do not mean the shuffling hags of the city streets, who are the opposite number of the confirmed male bums. I mean reasonably young, decent, and intelligent women. There must be many of them, but their despair is not apparent. When a man is down and out, he has time on his hands for brooding. He may travel miles to see a man about a job and discover that the job is filled or that it is one of those jobs with no base pay but only a commission on the sale of some useless knick-knack which nobody would buy except out of pity. Turning that down, he finds himself back on the street with nowhere to go but just anywhere. So he walks and walks. He gazes into store windows at luxuries which are not for him and feels inferior and gives way to people who stop to look with an active interest. He wanders into the railroad station, or puts himself down in the library to ease his legs and soak up a little heat, but that isn't looking for a job, so he gets going again. He may not know it, but his aimlessness would give him away even if the very lines of his figure did not. He may be well-dressed in the clothes left over from the days when he had a steady job, but the clothes cannot disguise the droop. He sees thousands of other people, bookkeepers or clerks or chemists or wagon hands, busy at their work, 
and envies them from the bottom of his soul. They have their independence, their self-respect and manhood, and he simply cannot convince himself that he is a good man too, though he argue it out and arrive at a favorable verdict hour after hour. It is just money which makes this difference in him. With a little money, he would be himself again. This is the end of the article by Westbrook Pegler. The Second Basic Fear The Fear of Criticism Just how we originally came by this fear, no one can say definitely, but one thing is certain, we have it in a highly developed form. I am inclined to attribute the basic fear of criticism to that part of our inherited nature that prompts us not only to take away other people's goods and wares, but also to justify our actions by criticism of the character of others. It is well known that a thief will criticize the man from whom he steals, that politicians seek office not by displaying their own virtues and qualifications, but by running negative campaigns against their opponents. Designers and clothing manufacturers have not been slow to take advantage of this basic fear of criticism. Every season, styles change. Who establishes the styles? Certainly not the purchaser. It is the designers and manufacturers. Why do they change the styles so often? The answer is obvious. They change the styles so they can sell more clothes. The fear of criticism robs people of their initiative, destroys their power of imagination, limits their individuality, takes away their self-reliance, and does them damage in a hundred other ways. Parents often do their children irreparable injury by criticizing them. The mother of one of my friends used to punish him with a switch almost daily, always completing the job with a statement, You'll land in the penitentiary before you are twenty. He was sent to a reformatory at the age of seventeen. Editor's Comments Modern psychotherapy is well aware of the circumstance that Hill describes in the preceding paragraph. In the chapters on autosuggestion and hypnosis, reference was made to childhood traumas that result in phobias, compulsive behaviors, fixations, or complexes. However, there are instances in which the implanting of a suggestion is much more subtle. Hypnotherapists have found that common phrases such as, Don't you ever say no to me again, I'm afraid she'll never get over it, or You're just like your father, can hamper a person's abilities later in life if such phrases were said often enough or at a time when a child was particularly vulnerable. This is the end of the editor's comments. Criticism is the one form of service of which everyone has too much. Everyone has a stock of it, which is handed out gratis whether called for or not. Your nearest relatives are often the worst offenders, it should be recognized as a crime. In reality, it is a crime of the worst nature for any parent to build inferiority complexes in the mind of a child through unnecessary criticism. Employers who understand human nature get the best there is in people not by criticism, but by constructive suggestion. Parents may accomplish the same results with their children. Criticism will plant fear in the human heart or resentment but it will not build love or affection. Symptoms of the Fear of Criticism 
This fear is almost as universal as the fear of poverty, and its effects are just as fatal to personal achievement, mainly because this fear destroys initiative and discourages the use of imagination. The major symptoms of the fear are 1. Self-consciousness Generally expressed through nervousness, timidity in conversation and in meeting strangers, awkward movements, and shifting of the eyes. 2. Lack of poise Expressed through lack of voice control, nervousness in the presence of others, poor posture, poor memory. 3. Personality weaknesses Lacking in firmness of decision, personal charm, and ability to express opinions definitely. The habit of sidestepping issues instead of meeting them squarely. Agreeing with others without careful examination of their opinions. 4. Inferiority complex The habit of expressing your own self-approval as a means of covering up your feeling of inferiority. Using big words to impress others, often without knowing the real meaning of the words. Imitating others in dress, speech, and manners. Boasting of imaginary achievements and acting superior to cover up the fact that you feel inferior. 5. Extravagance The habit of trying to keep up with the Joneses and spending beyond your income. 6. Lack of initiative Failure to embrace opportunities for self-advancement, fear to express opinions, lack of confidence in your own ideas, giving evasive answers to questions asked by superiors, hesitancy of manner and speech, deceit in both words and deeds. 7. Lack of ambition Mental and physical laziness Lack of self-assertion Slowness in reaching decisions Being too easily influenced The habit of accepting defeat without protest Or quitting an undertaking when opposed by others also the habit of criticizing others behind their backs and flattering them to their faces, suspicion of other people without cause, lack of tactfulness of manner and speech, and unwillingness to accept the blame for mistakes. The Third Basic Fear The Fear of Ill Health This fear may be traced to both physical and social heredity. It is closely associated with the causes of fear of old age and the fear of death. We fear ill health because of the terrible pictures that have been planted in our minds of what may happen if death should overtake us. We also fear it because of the economic toll that it may claim. One reputable physician estimated that 75% of all people who visit doctors are suffering with hypochondria, imaginary illness. It has been shown that the fear of disease, even when there is not the slightest cause for fear, often produces the physical symptoms of the disease feared. Powerful and mighty is the human mind. It builds or it destroys. Through a series of experiments, my staff proved how susceptible people are to the power of suggestion. We asked three acquaintances to visit separately with the victim. They were instructed to pose the question, what ails you? You look terribly ill. The first questioner provoked a grin from him in a nonchalant, Oh, nothing, I'm all right. The second questioner was answered with a statement, 
I don't know exactly, but I do feel badly. The third questioner was met with the admission that the victim was actually feeling ill. Editor's Comment Hill's experiment is one that you do not want to carry too far. It is not that different from the principle behind certain religious sects whose members take vengeance on their enemies by hexing or placing a spell on a victim. The spell only works because the victim believes that spells can be cast and that it is possible he or she could be hexed. When the hex victim is informed that someone has cast a spell on them, they accept that it is possible, and their mind does the rest. The same theory operated when Hill's associate was told three times that he looked ill. He believed it was possible. Being told three times was convincing, and his mind went to work and made it so. This is the end of the editor's comment. There is overwhelming evidence that disease sometimes begins in the form of negative thought impulse. Such thoughts may be planted in your mind by suggestion or created by you in your own mind. Doctors send patients to new climates for their health because a change of mental attitude is necessary. The seed of fear of ill health lives in every human mind. Worry, fear, discouragement, or disappointment can cause this seed to germinate and grow. Symptoms of the Fear of Ill Health The symptoms of this almost universal fear are 1. Autosuggestion The habit of negative use of self-suggestion by looking for and expecting to find symptoms of all kinds of disease. Enjoying your imaginary illness and speaking of it as being real. The habit of trying fads and isms recommended by others as having therapeutic value. Talking to others of operations, accidents, and other forms of illness. Experimenting with diets, physical exercises, weight loss systems without professional guidance. Trying home remedies, patent medicines, and quack remedies. 2. Hypochondria a medical term for imaginary disease. The habit of excessively talking about illness, and by concentrating the mind on disease you begin to expect it to happen to you. Nothing that comes in bottles can cure this condition. It is brought on by negative thinking, and nothing but positive thought can cure it. Hypochondria is said to do as much damage on occasion as the real disease might do. 3. Exercise. Fear of ill health often interferes with proper physical exercise and results in overweight. 4. Susceptibility. Fear of ill health breaks down your natural resistance, which makes you susceptible to real disease. The fear of ill health is often related to the fear of poverty, especially in the case of the hypochondriac who constantly worries about the possibility of having to pay doctor's bills hospital bills, etc. This type of person spends much time preparing for sickness, talking about death, saving money for cemetery plots, burial expenses, and such. 5. Self-coddling The habit of seeking sympathy, the habit of feigning illness to cover your laziness or to serve as an alibi for lack of ambition. People often resort to this trick to avoid work. 6. Intemperance. 
the habit of using alcohol or drugs to destroy pain instead of eliminating the cause. 7. The habit of reading about illness and worrying over the possibility of being stricken by it. The fourth basic fear. The fear of loss of love. Jealousy and other similar forms of neurosis grow out of our fear of the loss of love of someone. This fear is the most painful of all the six basic fears. It probably plays more havoc with the body and mind than any of the other basic fears. Editor's Comment By way of introduction to each of the six basic fears, Napoleon Hill usually postulates how the fear originated in humans. In the original edition of this book, he suggested that the fear of loss of love may have started with prehistoric man's habit of stealing his neighbor's mate and taking liberties with her whenever he could. Though amusing, this theory does not take into account that women fear the loss of a love just as profoundly as men do, and both men and women fear losing the love of not just their mates, but also of family members and others with whom they are close. How the emotion of love originated may remain a mystery, but there is no mystery about how we feel when we lose it. This is the end of the editor's comment. Symptoms of the Fear of Loss of Love The distinguishing symptoms of this fear are 1. Jealousy The habit of being suspicious of friends and loved ones. The habit of accusing wife or husband of infidelity without grounds. General suspicion of everyone and absolute faith in no one. 2. Fault-finding the habit of finding fault with friends, relatives, business associates, and loved ones upon the slightest provocation, or without any cause whatsoever. 3. Gambling The habit of gambling, stealing, cheating, and otherwise taking hazardous chances to provide money for loved ones in the belief that love can be bought. The habit of spending beyond your means, or incurring debts to provide gifts for loved ones, in order to make a good impression. Also insomnia, nervousness, lack of persistence, weakness of will, lack of self-control, lack of self-reliance, bad temper. The fifth basic fear. The fear of old age. In the main, this fear grows out of two sources. First, the thought that old age may bring with it poverty— Second is the concern that many have for what may await them in the world beyond. The most common cause of fear of old age is associated with the possibility of poverty. Poorhouse is not a pretty word. It throws a chill into the mind of every person who faces the possibility of having to spend declining years having to live on some form of charity. The possibility of ill health, which is more common as people grow older, is also a contributing cause of this common fear of old age, as is concern about diminishing sexuality. Another contributing cause of the fear of old age is the possibility of loss of freedom and independence, as old age may bring with it the loss of both physical and economic freedom. Symptoms of the Fear of Old Age The most common symptoms of this fear are 1. Lack of enthusiasm. The tendency to slow down and develop an inferiority complex, 
falsely believing you are slipping because of age. The habit of killing off initiative, imagination, and self-reliance by falsely believing you are too old to exercise these qualities. 2. Self-consciousness of speech The habit of speaking apologetically of yourself as being old merely because you have reached the age of 40 or 50, instead of reversing the rule and expressing gratitude for having reached the age of wisdom and understanding. 3. Inappropriate dress and action Trying to appear much younger than your age by going overboard in your attempt to keep up with the style and mannerisms of youth. The Sixth Basic Fear The Fear of Death To some, this is the cruelest of all the basic fears. The reason is obvious. The terrible pangs of fear associated with the thought of death in the majority of cases may be charged to religious fanaticism. So-called heathens are less afraid of death than the more civilized. For hundreds of millions of years we have been asking the still unanswered questions, Where did I come from? And where am I going? During the darker ages of the past, the more cunning and crafty were not slow to offer the answer to these questions for a price. Come into my tent. Embrace my faith. Accept my dogmas and I will give you a ticket that will admit you straight into heaven when you die, says the religious leader. Remain out of my tent, says the same leader, and the devil will take you and burn you throughout eternity. The thought of eternal punishment destroys interest in life and makes happiness impossible. While the religious leader may not actually be able to provide safe conduct into heaven or send you to hell, the possibility of the latter seems terrible. The very thought of it takes hold of the imagination in such a realistic way that it paralyzes reason and sets up the fear of death. The fear of death is not as common now as it was during the age when there were no great colleges and universities. People of science have turned the spotlight of truth upon the world, and this truth is rapidly freeing men and women from this terrible fear of death. The young men and women who attend the colleges and universities are not easily impressed by fire and brimstone. Through knowledge, the fears of the dark ages that grip the mind have been dispelled. The entire world is made up of only four things, time, space, energy, and matter. In elementary physics, we learn that neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. Both matter and energy can be transformed but neither can be destroyed. Life is energy, if it is anything. If neither energy nor matter can be destroyed, of course life itself cannot be destroyed. Life, like other forms of energy, may be passed through various processes of transition or change, but it cannot be destroyed. Death is mere transition. And if death is not mere change or transition, then nothing comes after death except a long, eternal, peaceful sleep. And sleep is nothing to be feared. If you can accept the logic of this, you may forever wipe out your fear of death. Symptoms of the Fear of Death The general symptoms of this fear are 1. The habit of thinking about dying, 
instead of making the most of life. This is generally due to lack of purpose or lack of a suitable occupation. This fear is more prevalent among the aged, but sometimes the more youthful are victims of it. The greatest of all remedies for the fear of death is a burning desire for achievement, backed by useful service to others. A busy person seldom has time to think about dying. A busy person finds life too thrilling to worry about death. 2. Sometimes the fear of death is closely associated with the fear of poverty, where death would leave loved ones poverty-stricken. 3. In other cases, the fear of death is caused by illness and the breakdown of physical body resistance. 4. The most common causes of the fear of death are ill health, poverty, lack of appropriate occupation, disappointment over love, insanity, and religious fanaticism. The Disaster of Worry and Destructive Thinking Worry is a state of mind based upon fear. It works slowly but persistently. It is insidious and subtle. Step by step, it digs itself in until it paralyzes the reasoning faculty and destroys self-confidence and initiative. Worry is a form of sustained fear caused by indecision. Therefore, it is a state of mind that can be controlled. An unsettled mind is helpless. Indecision makes an unsettled mind. Most individuals lack the willpower to reach decisions promptly and to stand by them after they have been made. We do not worry over conditions once we have reached a decision to follow a definite line of action. I once interviewed a man who was sentenced to be electrocuted two hours later. The condemned man was the calmest of the eight men who were in the death cell with him. His calmness prompted me to ask him how it felt to know that he was going into eternity in a short while. With a smile of confidence on his face, he said, It feels fine. Just think, brother, my troubles will soon be over. I've had nothing but trouble all my life. It has been a hardship to get food and clothing. Soon, I will not need these things. I have felt fine ever since I learned for certain that I must die. I made up my mind then to accept my fate in good spirit. As he spoke, he devoured a dinner sufficient for three men, eating every mouthful of the food brought to him, and apparently enjoying it as much as if no disaster awaited him. Decision gave this man resignation to his fate. Decision can also prevent one's acceptance of undesired circumstances. Through indecision, the six basic fears become translated into a state of worry. Relieve yourself forever of the fear of death by reaching a decision to accept death as an inescapable event. Eliminate the fear of old age by reaching a decision to accept it not as a handicap, but as a great blessing that carries with it wisdom, self-control, and understanding. Master the fear of loss of love by reaching a decision to get along without love, if that is necessary. Defeat the fear of criticism by reaching a decision not to worry about what other people think, do, or say. Overcome the fear of ill health by the decision to forget symptoms and whip the fear of poverty by reaching a decision to get along with whatever wealth you can accumulate without worry. Kill the Habit of Worry 
in all its forms, by reaching a general blanket decision that nothing life has to offer is worth the price of worry. With this decision will come poise, peace of mind, and calmness of thought, which will bring happiness. If your mind is filled with fear, you not only destroy your own chances of intelligent action, but you transmit these destructive vibrations to the minds of all who come into contact with you, and you destroy their chances too. Even a dog or a horse knows when its master lacks courage. It will pick up the vibrations of fear given off by its master and behave accordingly. The vibrations of fear pass from one mind to another just as quickly and as surely as the sound of the human voice passes from the broadcasting station to a radio receiver. The person who constantly speaks of negative or destructive thoughts is practically certain to experience the results of those words in the form of destructive feedback. But even negative thoughts without words will come back to you. The release of destructive thought impulses alone also produces feedback in more ways than one. First, and perhaps most important to be remembered, the person who releases thoughts of a destructive nature must suffer damage through the breaking down of creative imagination. Secondly, the presence in the mind of any destructive emotion develops a negative personality, which repels people and often converts them into antagonists. The third source of damage is that negative thoughts not only affect others, but they also embed themselves in the subconscious mind of the person releasing them and there become a part of that person's character. Your business in life is to achieve success. To be successful, you must find peace of mind, acquire the material needs of life, and above all, attain happiness. All of these indications of success begin in the form of thought impulses. You control your own mind. You have the power to feed it whatever thought impulses you choose. With this goes the responsibility of using your mind constructively. You are the master of your own earthly destiny, just as surely as you have the power to control your own thoughts. You may influence, direct, and eventually control your own environment, making your life what you want it to be. Or you may neglect to make your life what you want, and you will be adrift on the seas of circumstance, where you will be tossed like a wood chip on the waves of the ocean. The Devil's Workshop in addition to the six basic fears, there is another evil by which people suffer. It constitutes a rich soil in which the seeds of failure grow abundantly. It is so subtle that its presence often is not detected. It is more deeply rooted and more often fatal than all of the six fears. For want of a better name, let us call this evil susceptibility to negative influences. Those who accumulate great riches always protect themselves against negative influences. The poverty-stricken never do. Those who succeed in any calling must prepare their minds to resist such influences. If you are reading this book to learn how to grow rich, you should examine yourself very carefully to determine whether you are susceptible to negative influences. If you neglect this self-analysis, you will give up your right to attain the object of your desires. Make your analysis searching. As you read the following questions, be tough on yourself. 
Go at the task as carefully as you would if you were searching for any other enemy you knew was waiting to ambush you. You must deal with your own faults as you would with a real and serious enemy. You can easily protect yourself against real enemies because there are laws, police, and courts to deal with them. But this seventh basic evil is more difficult to master because it strikes when you are not aware of its presence, when you are asleep and while you are awake. Moreover, its weapon is intangible because it consists of merely a state of mind. Negative influences are also dangerous because they come in so many different forms. Sometimes they enter the mind through the well-meant words of your friends and relatives. At other times they come from within, through your own mental attitude. Always it is as deadly as poison, even though it may not kill as quickly. How to Protect Yourself Against Negative Influences To protect yourself against negative influences, whether of your own making or the result of negative people around you, recognize that your willpower is your defense. You must put it into constant use until it builds a wall of immunity against negative influences in your own mind. Recognize that you and every other human being are, by nature, lazy, indifferent, and susceptible to all suggestions that reinforce your weaknesses. Recognize that you are, by nature, susceptible to all of the six basic fears, and you must set up habits to counteract all these fears. Recognize that negative influences often work on you through your subconscious mind and are therefore difficult to detect. Keep your mind closed against all people who depress or discourage you in any way. Clean out your medicine chest and stop pandering to colds, aches, pains, and imaginary illness. Deliberately seek the company of people who influence you to think and act for yourself. Do not expect troubles as they have a tendency not to disappoint. Without doubt, the most common weakness of all human beings is the habit of leaving their minds open to the negative influences of other people. This weakness is all the more damaging because most people do not even know they do it. The following list of questions is designed to help you see yourself as you really are. You should read through the list now. Then set aside a day when you can give adequate time to go through the list again and thoroughly answer each question. When you do this, I advise that you read the questions and state your answers aloud so you can hear your own voice. This will make it easier for you to be truthful with yourself. Self-Analysis Questions Do you complain often of feeling bad, and if so, what is the cause? Do you find fault with other people at the slightest provocation? Do you frequently make mistakes in your work, and if so, why? Are you sarcastic and offensive in your conversation? Do you deliberately avoid the association of anyone, and if so, why? Do you suffer frequently with indigestion? If so, what is the cause? Does life seem futile and the future hopeless to you? Do you like your occupation? If not, why? Do you often feel self-pity? And if so, why? Are you envious of those who excel you? 
To which do you devote most time, thinking of success or of failure? Are you gaining or losing self-confidence as you grow older? Do you learn something of value from all mistakes? Are you permitting some relative or acquaintance to worry you? If so, why? Are you sometimes excited about life and at other times in the depths of despondency? Who has the most inspiring influence upon you and for what reason? Do you tolerate negative or discouraging influences that you could avoid? Are you careless of your personal appearance? If so, when and why? Have you learned how to ignore your troubles by being too busy to be annoyed by them? Would you call yourself a spineless weakling if you permitted others to do your thinking for you? How many preventable disturbances annoy you, and why do you tolerate them? Do you resort to alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, or other compulsions to quiet your nerves? If so, why do you not try willpower instead? Does anyone nag you, and if so, for what reason? Do you have a definite major purpose, and if so, what is it, and what plan do you have for achieving it? Do you suffer from any of the six basic fears? If so, which ones? Have you developed a method to shield yourself against the negative influence of others? Do you use auto-suggestion to make your mind positive? Which do you value most, your material possessions or your privilege of controlling your own thoughts? Are you easily influenced by others against your own judgment? Has today added anything of value to your stock of knowledge or state of mind? Do you face squarely the circumstances that make you unhappy, or do you sidestep the responsibility? Do you analyze all mistakes and failures and try to profit by them, or do you take the attitude that this is not your duty? Can you name three of your most damaging weaknesses? What are you doing to correct them? Do you encourage other people to bring their worries to you for sympathy? Do you choose from your daily experiences lessons or influences that aid in your personal advancement? Does your presence have a negative influence on other people as a rule? What habits of other people annoy you most? Do you form your own opinions, or do you permit yourself to be influenced by other people? Have you learned how to create a mental state of mind with which you can shield yourself against all discouraging influences? Does your occupation inspire you with faith and hope? Are you conscious of possessing spiritual forces of sufficient power to enable you to keep your mind free from all forms of fear? Does your religion help to keep your mind positive? Do you feel it your duty to share other people's worries? If so, why? If you believe that birds of a feather flock together, what have you learned about yourself by studying the friends whom you attract? What connection, if any, do you see between the people with whom you associate most closely 
and any unhappiness you may experience. Could it be possible that some person whom you consider to be a friend is, in reality, your worst enemy because of his or her negative influence on your mind? By what rules do you judge who is helpful and who is damaging to you? Are your intimate associates mentally superior or inferior to you? How much time out of every 24 hours do you devote to your occupation, sleep, play and relaxation, acquiring useful knowledge, plain wasted time? Who among your acquaintances encourages you most, cautions you most, discourages you most? What is your greatest worry? Why do you tolerate it? When others offer you free, unsolicited advice, do you accept it without question, or do you analyze their motive? What, above all else, do you most desire? Do you intend to acquire it? Are you willing to subordinate all other desires for this one? How much time daily do you devote to acquiring it? Do you change your mind often? If so, why? Do you usually finish everything you begin? Are you easily impressed by other people's business or professional titles, college degrees, or wealth? Are you easily influenced by what other people think or say about you? Do you cater to people because of their social or financial status? Whom do you believe to be the greatest person living? In what respect is this person superior to yourself? How much time have you devoted to studying and answering these questions? At least one day is necessary for the analysis and the answering of the entire list. If you have answered all these questions truthfully, you know more about yourself than the majority of people. Study the questions carefully, come back to them once each week for several months, and be astounded at the amount of additional knowledge of great value to yourself you will have gained by the simple method of answering the questions truthfully. If you are not certain about the answers to some of the questions, seek the counsel of those who know you well, especially those who have no motive in flattering you, and see yourself through their eyes. The experience will be astonishing. The One Thing Over Which You Have Absolute Control You have absolute control over only one thing, and that is your thoughts. This is the most significant and inspiring of all facts known to humans. It reflects our divine nature. This ability to control your thoughts is the sole means by which you may control your own destiny. If you fail to control your own mind, you may be sure you will control nothing else. Your mind is your spiritual estate. Protect and use it with the care to which divine royalty is entitled. You were given your willpower for this purpose. Unfortunately, there is no legal protection against those who, by design or through ignorance, poison the minds of others with negative suggestion. Those with negative minds tried to convince Thomas A. Edison that he could not build a machine that would record and reproduce the human voice, because, they said, no one else has ever produced such a machine.
Edison did not believe them. He knew that the mind could produce anything the mind could conceive and believe. That knowledge was the thing that lifted the great Edison above the common herd. Men with negative minds told F. W. Woolworth he would go broke trying to run a store on five and ten cent sales. He did not believe them. He knew that he could do anything within reason if he backed his plans with faith. Exercising his right to keep the negative suggestions of others out of his mind, he piled up a fortune of more than a hundred million dollars. Doubting Thomas's scoffed scornfully when Henry Ford tried out his first crudely built automobile on the streets of Detroit. Some said the thing would never become practical. Others said no one would pay money for such a contraption. Ford said, I'll belt the earth with dependable motor cars. And he did. For the benefit of those seeking vast riches, let it be remembered that practically the sole difference between Henry Ford and a majority of workers is this. Ford had a mind, and he controlled it. The others have minds that they do not try to control. Mind control is the result of self-discipline and habit. You either control your mind or it controls you. There is no halfway compromise. The most practical method for controlling your mind is the habit of keeping it busy with a definite purpose backed by a definite plan. Study the records of those who achieve noteworthy success and you will see that they have control over their own minds and that they exercise that control and direct it toward the attainment of definite objectives. Without this control, success is not possible. 55 Famous Alibis by Old Man If People who do not succeed have one distinguishing trait in common. They know all the reasons for failure and have what they believe to be airtight alibis to explain away their own lack of achievement. Some of these alibis are clever, and a few of them are justifiable by the facts, but alibis cannot be used for money. The world wants to know only one thing. Have you achieved success? A character analyst compiled a list of the most commonly used alibis. As you read the list, examine yourself carefully and determine how many of these alibis you use. Remember, the philosophy presented in this book makes every one of these alibis obsolete. If I didn't have a wife and family. If I had enough pull. If I had money. If I had a good education. If I could get a job. If I had good health. If I only had time. If times were better. If other people understood me. If conditions around me were only different. If I could live my life over again. If I did not fear what they would say. If I had been given a chance. If I now had a chance. If other people didn't have it in for me. If nothing happens to stop me. If only I were younger. If I only could do what I want. If I had been born rich. If I could meet the right people. If I had the talent that some people have. If I dared to assert myself. If only I had embraced past opportunities. If people didn't get on my nerves.
If I didn't have to keep house and look after the children. If I could save some money. If the boss only appreciated me. If I only had somebody to help me. If my family understood me. If I lived in a big city. If I could just get started. If I were only free. If I had the personality of some people. If I were not so fat. If my real talents were known. If I could just get a break. If I could only get out of debt. If I hadn't failed. If I only knew how. If everybody wasn't against me. If I didn't have so many worries. If I could marry the right person. If people weren't so dumb. If my family were not so extravagant. If I were sure of myself. If luck were not against me. If I had not been born under the wrong star. If it were not true that what is to be will be. If I did not have to work so hard. If I hadn't lost my money. If I lived in a different neighborhood. If I didn't have a past. If I only had a business of my own. If other people would only listen to me. If, and this is the greatest of them all. If I had the courage to see myself as I really am, I would find out what is wrong with me and correct it. And I know that something must be wrong with the way I have done things, or I would already have the success that I desire. I recognize that something must be wrong with me, otherwise I would have spent more time analyzing my weaknesses and less time building alibis to cover them. Building alibis to explain away failure is a national pastime. The habit is as old as the human race and is fatal to success. Why do people cling to their pet alibis? The answer is obvious. They defend their alibis because they create them. Your alibi is the child of your own imagination. It is human nature to defend your own brainchild. Building alibis is a deeply rooted habit. Habits are difficult to break, especially when they provide justification for something we do. Plato had this truth in mind when he said, The first and best victory is to conquer self. To be conquered by self is, of all things, the most shameful and vile. Another philosopher had the same thought in mind when he said, It was a great surprise to me when I discovered that most of the ugliness I saw in others was but a reflection of my own nature. Albert Hubbard, philosopher, author, publisher of The Fra magazine, and founder of the Roy Crofters Community of Artists, said, It has always been a mystery to me why people spend so much time deliberately fooling themselves by creating alibis to cover their weaknesses. If used differently, this same time would be sufficient to cure the weakness. Then no alibis would be needed. In parting, I would remind you that life is a checkerboard, and the player opposite you is time. If you hesitate before moving, or neglect to move promptly, your men will be wiped off the board by time. You are playing against a partner who will not tolerate indecision. 
Previously, you may have had a logical excuse for not having forced life to come through with whatever you asked. That alibi is now obsolete, because you are in possession of the master key that unlocks the door to life's riches. The master key is intangible, but it is powerful. It is the privilege of creating, in your own mind, a burning desire for a definite form of riches. There is no penalty for the use of this key, but there is a price you must pay if you do not use it. The price is failure. There is a reward of stupendous proportions if you put the key to use. It is the satisfaction that will come to you when you conquer self and force life to pay whatever is asked. The reward is worthy of your effort. Will you make the start and be convinced? If we are related, said the immortal Emerson, we shall meet. In closing, may I borrow his thought and say, If we are related, we have, through these pages, met. Remember that your real wealth can be measured not by what you have, but by what you are.